Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we look at our political institutions and how they're failing and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Well, we are recording this on April 30th, and when I read the news this morning, I learned of another uh, voting law in another red state, Florida, that is uh, restricting uh, voting methods that are used pre- predominantly by Democrats. That follows on the controversial uh, Georgia voting law, which some have dubbed Jim Crow 2.0, also voting restrictions brewing in some other states with Republican-controlled legislatures. And this has been uh, generating a lot of heartburn and controversy among people who think about democracy. And so I, I can think of no better guest to help us parse what's going on in the states uh, then Jake Grumbach, who's a professor at the uh, University of Washington in the political science department, and he's written a new paper that's been getting a lot of attention, and it has one of my favorite titles for uh, any political science paper. It's called uh, Laboratories of Democratic Backsliding. So welcome to the podcast, Jake. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start off by going a little big here and thinking about how do we conceptualize and measure democracy? Now, you've developed something in this paper called a state democracy index. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about how you conceptualize that and you know, give us a sense of what it would take for a state to score high on this index and maybe which states score highest and lowest and why, just to give us a sense of what we're really measuring here. Yeah, that's such a good question, Lee, because democracy is such a broad concept. But I think one of the most helpful ways to conceptualize it is to break it down into some component pieces that we think make up the concept of democracy, sort of ingredients in the democracy burrito. Um, And one of them clearly is free and fair elections or electoral democracy. And in this paper, Laboratories of Democratic Backsliding, I really analyze this main measure of sort of electoral democratic performance. And that's based in how much voter suppression happens in a state, how uh, costly or convenient and accessible the franchise is, and the sort of uh, partisan bias of districts through gerrymandering. Those sorts of things go into electoral democracy. But I think we should really talk about the broader definitions of democracy that have animated democratic theorists and scholars of comparative politics. And that features elements of uh, liberalism, right? Civil liberties, freedom from state, uh, sort of oppressive state authority, as well as egalitarianism, sort of whether rights uh, are uh, equitable in practice and whether uh, that comes from a tradition of social democracy that uh, people should have some equality of uh, resources that allows them to participate as full citizens in a polity. So I wanted to really um, think about this conceptualization and measurement of democracy in your paper, because you draw on a lot of work in comparative politics. And this is something we've we've all talked about a lot in the study of American politics in the last five or six years, that we should think more about the United States as a comparative case, which makes sense. And we should draw more on the insights of comparative politics. And this is where I sometimes get a little bit 
frustrated because I often find that the the way that people in comparative politics conceptualize things, particularly democracy, don't exactly map on to the unique history and particularly the unique racial history of the United States. And I thought it was interesting in your working paper that carceral features of of state backsliding don't exactly fit into your um, into your model. So do you want to talk a little bit about about this, this maybe tension between American politics realities and, and comparative politics uh, conceptions? Or That's so well put, and there's so much to dig in there. So uh, one thing is that so there is this big tradition of literature and comparative politics from uh, and from sort of research organizations in measuring democracy across countries in time. So people in the varieties of democracy project, Polity, Brightline Watch, and so many others were, became sort of the doomsday clock of, you know, the way the nuclear doomsday clock was a, a something scholars watched in the Cold War is similar now. Like, is the U.S. going to slip into this illiberal democracy regime or partial mixed authoritarian regime from sort of solid democracy? But you make this great point that it's really hard that U.S. is a unique case in some ways where its main threshold of democracy or its main way that it's been undemocratic throughout history has been through white supremacy and racial hierarchy, through slavery, then Jim Crow, and then now uh, uh, various de facto forms of institutional racism. So that makes the U.S. a really unique case. And I think that's it's just the U.S. as you know, a number of scholars are now arguing more prominently, the US is much more like the settler colonies of Latin America in terms of its democratic history and its ability to have uh, egalitarian multiracial democracy than it is similar to democracies in Europe and East Asia in places that are not uh, former settler slave colonies. Um, And that's just true. You can see that in legacies of violence and things that uh, the US just tracks Latin American countries more closely. With that said, American politics scholars had a real blind spot as well to democracy, especially with respect to policing. So after the end of Jim Crow in the 1960s and 70s, the rise of mass incarceration and police authoritarianism, which we increasingly see captured on camera in the murder of uh, mostly Black Americans, uh, often unarmed by police, and also skyrocketing incarceration rates that dwarf those of authoritarian regimes with larger populations, those are key to why the U.S. democracy is not uh, uh, sort of as expansive and equitable and uh, free as many people theorize. So it's really props to scholars like, you know, Sauce and Weaver, Joe Sauce and Vesla Weaver and others who are saying, you know, many people in the U.S., when they're uh, marginalized by race and class identity and live in like ghettoized communities, their main interaction with the state is through authoritarian policing rather than, you know, sort of the benevolent face of the state that one might get uh, when participating in an election or getting government services and things like that. Um, So that was a major blind spot that's finally being looked at. But as you said in your question, Julia, that was so on point is that really interestingly, so the big finding in my paper here is that in terms of electoral democracy, there's been a huge polarization between democratically controlled states and divided governmental states on the one hand and Republican controlled states on the other, where we've seen a lot of Republican uh, democratic backsliding in the states. But we don't see that same polarization on issues of 
authoritarianism and uh, with respect to policing and mass incarceration. That's really been a bipartisan affair since the 1970s. And that's just really important to say. So when people say, you know, my paper, you know, it does really implicate the Republican Party nationally in democratic backsliding. But it's really important to remember that when we talk about this liberal democracy component, freedom from oppressive state authority and violence, um, that is a, a pretty much bipartisan affair. But after the uh, you know, the largest peaceful uh, social movement in U.S. history of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, where we may start to see some partisan polarization at the elite level on these uh, issues of liberal democracy and freedom from authoritarianism. I really enjoyed the working paper and your article, and, and I recommend uh, to our listeners that they that they check it out. I want to push you, though, a, a little bit here, and I want to kind of share with you how I see the world. And then I want you to, if you can, tell me why I'm wrong or tell me how your thesis may change. Because, you know, efforts to change the rules have happened throughout American history and throughout political history. And they're never unbiased and they're never impartial. It doesn't mean they don't come from a good place. And it doesn't mean that some changes aren't better than others. But it does happen. And I think we end up we don't get a fullest sense of politics when we typically see uh, it is a rectilinear process. This kind of uh, the, the laboratory of democracy type idea implies we're, we're perfecting something and then we're going to figure that out. And what we have today is better than what we had yesterday and so on and so on. This is something that comes out of uh, the 19th century and the idea of history, incidentally, uh, you know, which is also when we see in the idea of democracy a switch from the egalitarian to more civil libertarian, the role of the individual in American politics and political theory more broadly. But ultimately, I think I want to ask you, how does your thesis change if we see democracy not as the rule of the people, right? Because that's not what we have in America, but in terms of a what we have in America, which is a place, a space where people then participate in this activity. And we can draw that circle of the number of people who are allowed to participate in that activity very large or very narrow. And thankfully, it's getting bigger as we go. Sometimes it may get more narrower, unfortunately. But does that change how, because that's typically how I see it versus a, we're just kind of, we're marching towards the promised land. Does that change or is this is this too nuanced or is that does that change your thesis at all? I'm trying to I don't I'm not sure it's incompatible with your argument. I think I don't think it's incompatible. I think that's a very rich question there. So, I mean, on the one hand, so uh, I think pointing to reconstruction as the ultimate case of showing that actually there can be tremendous sort of uh, progress towards multiracial democracy and then a great uh, sort of collapse of it. Reconstruction is the ultimate case, the first attempt uh, to create a multiracial democracy in the U.S. Um, for a you know around 12-year period to enforce uh, civil rights and the freedom of the franchise, at least for men of all races, uh, was a, a major turning point that then collapsed that in the late 1870s, um, and the, we saw the establishment of Jim Crow. So I think uh, uh, the idea that expansion of democracy and then contraction, um, and it doesn't follow a linear teleological progress towards a platonic form of democracy. I think that's absolutely right. At the same but, time- Can uh, I just jump in real quick? I mean, this is where I, you know, I want to 
push you just a little bit here. And I think, and this maybe it's just kind of thread the needle too closely or mixing metaphors now, but you know, there's a difference between a policy outcome and the process. And that's really hard to see when the policy outcomes impact the process. But ultimately, if we take Georgia, for example, here you have in Georgia a situation where you it, it may, you know, and I'm not defending the Georgia laws by any means, but it's a question of a polity, people who are participating in this process, choosing to do one thing or another, but it may make it harder or it may make it easier, but we're not, this isn't disenfranchising people. And it may have the effect of that, I agree, and I'm not defending the, the law here. But I guess my point is like, it's not just even, it's not, because it goes the other way too. And sorry, I'm rambling here a little bit, but if we think about uh, citizenship laws for voting, Right. Reconstruction, we would point to that or we look to the past and we'd say, well, you know, it's only gotten worse since then, potentially. But then if you look at, you know, some states, if you're in favor of allowing, uh, you know, non-citizens to vote, some states allowed non-citizens to vote in the 19th century. And so it's like this idea of progress, I guess. I'm not trying to argue about the outcomes. I'm more about how how does this idea of progress complicate our ability to understand politics as a political, as an activity in which we participate. And in that activity, we battle and argue over the rules. So I, yeah, I think that's a, there's a ton to dig in there. So one thing is that I would say just to help in this conversation is uh, some elements, especially of electoral democracy is conceptualized as majority rule. Um, So Robert Dahl prominently uh, defined democracy that way in terms in his work, how democratic is the US constitution. So majoritarianism is a key, uh, is probably the central point of electoral democracy and conceptualizations of democratic theory. And in that way, the US has many sort of counter majoritarian institutions that enhance the ability of minority rule. Um, But then in addition, let's say my majority rule is happening, then you bring up, I think you uh, also implied this amazing paradox, I'm blanking on the guy's name, it's a paradox named after somebody, but essentially if- The Jake paradox. Yeah, the Jake paradox, <laughs> but it's, what if democratic majority, legitimate democratic majorities support anti-democratic things, right? So people cite polls, ah, like sometimes majorities of American adults support voter ID laws and other things that increase the cost of voting that do not expand access to the franchise. Like, is that then democratic or anti-democratic, right? It's responding to majorities, but it's something that uh, makes- Uh, sort of access to the franchise more restrictive. Uh, That's a paradox that I haven't solved, but I would say that, you know, at a very extreme, if a Democratic majorities vote to enslave themselves or take away their own franchise and things like that, those are fundamental paradoxes that we haven't solved in Democratic theory. But I would say I can, in sort of to operationalize it, I do consider that anti-democratic. But within my measure, there are nuances. So responsiveness to the opinion of majorities is part of both my measure and sort of my theoretical conceptualization of of democracy. At the same time, I think there's, uh, you know, you point process and outcomes are difficult to disentangle in this way. So, yeah, I think you hit on a lot of key, the sort of key complications with understanding democratic change over time. But I would also say my measure and my study are about Uh, the past two decades of uh, democratic performance in the states, especially electoral democracy. And I just, it's really important to contextualize that, like you said, uh, in somewhat, so it, on average, it's probably less costly to vote than for the average American than it was in 1990. 
probably. In addition, just the most extreme forms of democratic backsliding we see now are not, do not match the same level as pre-1965 state-based voter suppression and disenfranchisement-based policies that there's a great paper recently on Louisiana's disenfranchisement of Black voters through Jim Crow that really statistically analyzed this, Ishmael White and some co-authors. And, you know, there's like, at times, like in a county, like there'll be like two Black voters. Now, uh, uh, political organizers uh, and voter mobilization teams and so forth can, to some extent, exert tremendous effort to counteract policies that increase the cost of voting. Um, and uh, gerrymandered districts, right, are, are uh, make different people's votes sort of count more, I guess, in, uh, in translating votes to legislative seats. But again, it's not full disenfranchisement. So I think, you know, all of these points are uh, really well taken. But I think we can really say over the past couple of decades, there has been some serious democratic backsliding in some states uh, in uh, very clear ways with all those caveats I mentioned. Let's talk about uh, more about this backsliding and the, the the changing nature of the burrito fillings. I mean, I don't know, is this like less sour cream, more jalapeno peppers? What you know? What are we talking about here? Actually, let, let me let me be a little bit more more specific in this question. Now we've kind of seen a, a, a rise in voter strict voter ID laws, you know, over the last 20 years or so. In the 2020 election, we saw a rise in mail ballots. Um, there, there's all kinds of aspects of, I guess, what political scientists more broadly would call convenience voting and ballot boxes, early voting. Uh, so all of these things in elections prior to 2020, there was a lot of work, particularly on on early voting and, and vote by mail that suggested, you know, there's not really that much of a of a partisan valence to this. I mean, look at Texas, they have early voting that hasn't necessarily helped Democrats. Look at Florida, Republicans probably took advantage of vote by mail there more than Democrats did. But something happened in 2020, which was that Republicans decided that uh, these modes of of convenience voting, you know, were were somehow, you know, plots by the Democrats, so they used them less. So uh, one question here is, is how does that affect how we think about voting laws when one party decides that one form of voting is the form of voting that the other side is going to use? And is there any sort of precedent for that. Second question I have is more about uh, the the effect of these voting laws. And, you know, this helps us potentially to think about how it, impactful Georgia voting law might be. So there's one sort of way of thinking about this, which is the, the view that Nate Cohn of the New York Times uh, kind of elevated in a recent piece, which is to say that, look, you know, there's a lot of political science on uh, the effects of voter ID laws and the effects of convenience voting. And it turns out that the effects are, are pretty marginal. And, you know, there may even be a backfire effect because when you make it harder for one group to vote, they want to vote more. It probably has a lot more to do with the competitiveness of the election and the extent to which people feel that it's high stakes and if people want to vote, they're going to find a way to vote. You know, on the other hand, you know, there's kind of a, a normative point, which is that, you know, well, if this 
if this is aggressively trying to disenfranchise a certain group of voters, that that is a, a really bad thing normatively. And, and also, you know, even it, even if the effects are pretty marginal, elections in America are often decided by a few thousand votes. I mean, look at the, the, the Georgia Senate race, uh, which determined the balance of power in the in the US Senate. I mean, look at the presidential election in which, you know, a few few states in the last two presidential elections, you know, it wasn't that many voters in, in a handful of states that decide who's going to be president. So how do you think about the intent of these voting rules, the sort of partisan approach to different modalities of voting, all layered on top of this this incredibly knife's edge partisan balance in who has power in Washington? That's such a good question. This is a great podcast, you guys. You guys ask good questions. So uh, I would say first, uh, just I think the first thing to always state here is that the normative implications of a election law change or election administration change or districting change are, it's not based on the, you know, sort of the average treatment effect or average treatment effect on the treated, either on turnout or on partisan balance, right? Neither of those actually, it captures the normative implications of whether this enhances or constrains democracy. So uh, something that is uh, something that increase increases the cost of voting, even if it ends up having no effect on uh, voter turnout due to those countervailing forces you mentioned, like uh, sort of backlash to a voter suppression or something like that. Um, that actually is just not central to the normative implication or whether that policy or administrative change uh, is sort of good or bad for democracy. That's the first thing. Uh, same thing, even more so with the partisan balance, the partisan effect of laws, right? So if some law turns out more Republican voters than Democratic voters or vice versa, right? That is also not central to the normative implication because one side could, for example, set up the status quo to be extremely biased and costly for certain populations to vote. And then any change would, you know, towards uh, more accessible voting would create a partisan sort of effect. And that shouldn't, again, should not matter. But with that said, you're exactly right. You talked about, uh, for example, the uh, find, consistent finding that vote by mail policies uh, do not actually uh, sort of sway partisan outcomes in elections. That's a consistent finding across multiple papers, across a uh, paper by uh, Andy Hall and co-authors, another one. And then uh, also in terms of just uh, partisan registration. Uh, my paper now I have with Adam Bonica, Hakeem Jefferson, and Charlotte Hill uh, suggests there's no difference in uh, uh, whether it turns out people based on their party of registration. And yet you still saw Republican elites, especially Donald Trump, talking about vote by mail as a democratic plot um, susceptible to fraud and uh, probably uh, decrease the enthusiasm of uh, Republican voters using that uh, vote by mail, despite the fact that uh, polls as recently as you know 2019 showed supermajority support even from Republican voters for vote by mail policies, right? So that elite signaling really uh, reduced the support for vote by mail among Republican voters and probably reduced its use. And I like to say uh, this that was despite the uh, you know many difference in differences ATT estimates that there was no real partisan effect of vote by mail over the many years of its existence. And I like to say Donald Trump probably just had lingering concerns about parallel trend violations in those stats models. And that's why he was so concerned about vote by mail 
But in general, uh, uh, those are not good grounds for assessing the sort of democraticness or how we should understand those types of policies on uh, uh, sort of democratic performance. At the same time, uh, there, so then the policy research overall, there's just a, you know, voter turnout studies are one of the biggest uh, literatures in American political science. And uh, there's a lot of tremendously good measurement of potentially small effects, null effects, sometimes large effects for certain populations. So there's a variety here. So that's where I'd push back on Nate Cohn's New York Times piece, which really says the normative implications should of a policy should be based on its effect on turnout. And I disagree with that. But let's say, let's take that and say, okay, let's look at the turnout effects. And in some election laws seem to have minimal effects on turnout. Um, some seem to have quite substantial effects on certain subpopulations. So a paper uh, with Charlotte Hill that I have, forthcoming Journal of Politics, looks at uh, same-day voter registration with respect to young voters and shows that, I think not surprisingly, when you think about this theoretically, that policies like early voting don't matter much to young people um, but really registration is a main barrier to uh, young people voting because they tend to move around a lot. They may be going to college, living at home, move into an apartment. Typically, when you change addresses, you have to re-register to vote. Young people, you know, if you remember that eclipse, uh, the solar eclipse a few years ago when everybody was desperately trying to find their eclipse sunglasses with the pinhole so you could see the eclipse and then nobody, you know, if you had a 45 or 30 day limit on before the eclipse to get those eclipse glasses, nobody would get, right? You know, that's the similar thing with young people, young procrastinators like me um, and my younger cohorts, the Gen Z uh, kids uh, tend to procrastinate on voter registration, might get hyped up as election day approaches and they uh, see more signals from media and social media and uh, social pressure from friends and things like that. But then if they miss that registration deadline while there was less media coverage of the election and less fanfare, then they're out of luck. But in same day and automatic voter registration states, they can register as they cast their ballot. And that's been uh, pretty important, we find, for uh, uh, voters, especially under 35 and especially under, should look, I think under 25 has the uh, largest effect. Um, unsurprisingly. So again, just a tremendous amount of nuance there in sort of turnout effects, uh, depending on the policies. More recently, it does look like some of these more recent, for example, voter ID laws probably had more muted effects, um, maybe due to uh, some countervailing mobilization against those laws. Um, although there's, again, you know, so many moving parts here, it's uh, really hard to get a, a, a precise and unbiased statistical estimate of these sorts of things. So luckily, that's not all that central to the normative implications. So I wanted to ask um, a couple questions that sort of get at some of the, these themes about what what it really is to um, to participate in democratic backsliding or for states to be part of that. Um, and also to, you know, to James's uh, conceptualizations of of democracy. So I think I have, I think I have kind of a two part question. Bear with me. Um, one of the questions that I had looking at your work was about the connection between the state level democratic backsliding and the kind of broader national picture, which is this kind of counter majoritarian politics that, 
that we see emerging. There's just a piece at, at 538 about the ways in which it's possible. And again, it was not, you know, it was not symmetrical partisan in terms of partisanship, right? It was, you know, ways in which Republicans can win fewer votes and still control more levers of power. And so I'm curious about the connection between that and the sort of laboratories of, of backsliding. Um, the other question that I have is more in line with my own personal pet hangups. And it's about, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me in your working paper is that you identify 2010 as a kind of important cut point in which Republicans take over state um, legislatures. This question about sort of the national versus state implications of democratic backsliding is really on point. So um, one thing I think, you know, we've talked about before, we've referenced Jim Crow in this discussion a, a few times. And uh, in comparing contemporary sort of uh, electoral democracy issues and backsliding, um, one thing that is there are some similarities to Jim Crow in that first, the main thing is that in the U.S. system of federalism, it's very unique even compared to other federal institutional systems around the world like India, Canada, Germany, Mexico, Switzerland, where there is some institutional decentralization, but the U.S. is an especially decentralized form of federalism that puts democratic institutions like election administration and districting at the state level, the lower subnational units. That's a pretty important feature. And then when you combine that with the racial history of the U.S., like we talked about, um, and its status as a sort of settler and slave colony, state and local governments directly and indirectly enforced racial hierarchy and disenfranchisement throughout American history. And it was typically the national government that came in to enforce civil rights, either by outlawing states from allowing slavery or uh, ruling unconstitutional Jim Crow disenfranchisement and segregation laws and so forth. So that's really crucial that the U.S., the place to look for where democracy lives and dies is at the state level. In addition, there's some similarities to Jim Crow in that many of these voter suppression laws, they do not explicitly say, you know, let's make voting more costly to black people or even to Democrats, but they are clearly uh, have major racial implications. And also, uh, if you're attempting partisan gerrymandering, uh, sort of the best ways to target and uh, uh, pack voters into districts and waste their votes is to understand the racial patterns of uh, racial geography within a state. So this is all, uh, uh, you know, there are some similarities. At the same time, there's a major, major difference from Jim Crow with the current politics of voter suppression. And that's not that race is not similarly central now. Race is the central mass-based conflict in American politics. One thing I like to say is that elites in American politics are polarized by economic policy, but the masses are have a tremendous amount of consensus around economic policy, but are very polarized on sociocultural and racial identity-based issues. So you can tell a lot more about the party someone votes for based on what they say about Colin Kaepernick than what they say about health insurance or the minimum wage or you know, financial regulation or any of these things that major policies tend to be about um, in American politics. So that's just so crucial to keep in mind. So race is central here, right? And the January 6th uh, capital insurrection was centrally a mob attempting a coup in opposition to multiracial democracy in the U.S. At the same time, uh, the difference between Jim Crow and now is that 
right now we have national politics and political conflict playing out through subnational institutions, whereas Jim Crow, as we saw in you know work by people like Rob Mickey and others, this was about state and even more localized conflict over racial hierarchy, land, public goods, and sort of economic redistribution. That's a very different type of politics. The parties were much more decentralized there uh, during Jim Crow, of course, as we know uh, from the, the history of Jim Crow and Southern realignment and all of this and Southern Democrats. Uh, but really just now, my paper really shows that in predicting democratic backsliding, you really can't tell it from any features of a state except for whether it's controlled by the Republican Party. So it's not about whether a state is getting more competitive or an influx of immigrants to a state, right? There's all sorts of micro level studies that suggest that an influx of immigrants or a diversification of a small area produces backlash amongst the uh, uh, sort of, I guess, native born, uh, mostly white populations. Um, on, by contrast, in terms of electoral democratic backsliding in the states, it really has nothing to do with that. This is about national conflict. The idea that U.S., uh, you know, that sort of make America great again. The U.S. is in decline nationally, um, and uh, it's important to maintain national power. And because of American federalism, the levers of power exist at the state level, but politics is entirely nationalized. Um, and this part of the reason for that is the decline of state and local media, the nationalization and centralization of the parties as organizational networks, and so many other reasons. But this is the National Republican Party, which is a coalition. I love the new Hacker and Pearson book, Let Them Eat Tweets. I think it summarizes this really well. The National Republican Party is a coalition at its elite level of the very wealthy who have, uh, you know, as Dan Ziblatt's book, Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy would suggest, have incentives to restrict democracy, right? The very, very wealthy in an economically unequal society uh, know that voters will probably redistribute some of their wealth with their, you know, by, through democratic politics. And that's something that's not great for very people at the top who wanna keep their wealth. And then Similarly, at the base level of the Republican Party, the base is not interested in the high-end tax cuts or cutting the Affordable Care Act. We saw that during the Trump administration. These uh, Chris Warshaw did a great analysis of the Trump administration's policy positions uh, and uh, public opinion for them. They were not supported by majorities of Republican voters really in any geographic location. Um, you know, what people voted for was, I mean, the only policy content of the Trump administration that was at all related to why people voted for it was the wall, right? Uh, so the base is really motivated by a white resentment identity politics, the elite uh, constituency motivated by uh, conservative economic policy that's not as popular. And that is a recipe that's very unique among national conservative parties around the world to have that combination of right-wing populism plus extremely conservative policies. For example, you know, the uh, you know, not believing climate change is a thing and not, you know, not supporting uh, national health insurance and so many things that are unique across industrial democracy. So typically in Europe, for example, the rise of far right parties are right wing populist anti immigration policies that support the welfare state for the sort of what they consider the like legitimate citizenry. In the US, you don't have that type of party, you, you see some rhetorical moves by Josh Hawley and others in the Republican Party suggesting they're going to become this 
uh, sort of right-wing populist party, but the policy agenda is not there. And given party networks where the Republican Party's elite constituency is not going anywhere, you know, the Koch brothers and uh, large, large donors and large firms are not going anywhere, the fossil fuel industry is not going anywhere, that is not going to translate into a sort of working class anti-immigration platform. That is not going to be a thing. It's the rhetoric will continue in that way because that's the way you win elections, but it's not going to translate into policy. The point being here is the Republican Party has a strong incentive, both from its mass base and its elite base, to constrain democracy for its mass base, for issues of sort of uh, racial hegemony and in the elite constituency for to, you know, continue to hold its wealth in a highly economically unequal uh, political economy. So we talk about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I have a hard time trying to wrap my head around what that is. Like, who is that? Where do they make those decisions? And I, I know about parties in Congress. I know about parties at the electorate. I know, you know, pig pie po that stuff. Uh, I, you know, I, I look out, I see 50 Republican parties. I see 50 Democratic parties. I have a hard time seeing that. And yes, we politics is nationalized today. I would not dispute that. But I want to pose a provocative kind of argument here and see what you think. Is it nationalized because we focus on elections? What do I mean by that? This backsliding idea, it highlights the idea of, you know, politics is progress and production, right? What happens when you see it like that is that you need to control the means of production. And where do you get those in politics? You get them in elections. And we emphasize elections. And the reason why we talk about Colin Kaepernick instead of policy is because the parties don't agree on policy. And so they have to look for other things to motivate their voters and win elections, which would then ironically suggest that maybe the elections don't mean as much. And ultimately, I think what I would you know, my questions of three questions, like one, are we putting too much emphasis on elections in American politics, in the media and the scholarly community? And has that emphasis led to a neglect of what's happening in between elections, right? In between elections, because politics is about an activity that takes place in spaces. The electoral environment's one area, the floors of the House and Senate, committees, the presidency, uh, the you know judiciary, civil disobedience, Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, North Carolina youth walking into a Woolworths and sitting down at the lunch counter. That's politics. That's taking place in a space. And politics is always happening. We're not just picking our rulers in elections to govern, to rule us in between those elections. And I think we've lost sight of that. And we have this production-oriented model where it's like we have to control the factory. So therefore, we have to do everything we can to win elections. And yes, that's always been there. And to Lee's point about precedence, I mean, the Jeffersonian Republicans are fighting to expand the franchise. The progressive movement's uh, changing the way ballot laws in the states are, are, are implemented. I mean, there is precedent for large-scale conflict over the electoral rules in our nation's history, not just on race, just in general, because it's an enduring feature of our politics. I think the question is, how does our exclusive focus on elections is the be all and end all of American politics? And I'm intentionally being more kind of provocative to see if you'll tell me why I'm wrong, is that we end up losing sight of that activity. We lose sight of the fact that Congress hasn't done anything, that Congress can't debate a healthcare bill because they're, they don't want to allow that debate to take place. The reason why the House can pass bills and the Senate can is because the House can control that debate a lot more easily than the Senate can. It's not because of the filibuster. And therefore, you then 
ultimately can get some like carefully com you know compromised negotiated thing on immigration and you get it through there as quickly as possible without anything that could come up and reveal any divisions within the parties and reveal new coalitions that ultimately lead to passing legislation and then you get to the senate and then it it doesn't go anywhere. Well, it's and it's not the filibuster because the Republicans and Democrats, depending on who's in control, don't even try. And and I think that's the to me when I see backsliding, the backsliding is happening in our deliberative capacity to engage in politics as citizens and as as representatives of citizens. I think hey, if you're saying you know, sorry, that, I just threw a whole bunch at you. I just wanted no, to. If you're saying that <laughs> politics is not like mass politics is not focused enough on public policy and is too focused on you know elections, not just every two years but every four years, um, and symbolic politics, and so you're not going to get any protests from me. That's like deep, near and dear to my heart is a greater policy focus between elections. But uh, I think just but, it's important to but, say this has been consistent throughout American history is that people are not all that focused on uh, the nuances of public policy uh, between elections, but are focused on uh, coalitions winning power. But I'd say in addition, your second part, which is that the democratic backsliding is a, the sort of decline of uh, civil society and sort of connections between Americans and public policy and sort of a, an efficacy with respect to the policies that affect their lives. I think that's exactly right. So some of my other work talks about the decline of the labor movement as a really key way that connected ordinary people and their economic circumstances to public policy. And the decline of the labor movement we find really has important effects for creating an opening for sociocultural resentment politics, especially among white workers where uh, labor unions uh, used to be a space to build a uh, competing narrative to a sort of racial resentment based frame. And those have tremendously declined. And, uh, you know, the sort of fetus gospel and Marshall Gann style, like voluntarist organizational society has declined as well. And, you know, bowling alone is a bit real in this way. Um, but I think we, we don't focus enough on the labor movement here. But I think that's exactly right. And reinvigorating uh, the, you know, and uh, rejuvenating the labor movement and student organizations and other uh, sort of organizations that connect uh, citizens to public policy uh, beyond just sort of the symbolic, you know, watching cable news and stuff uh, is just absolutely crucial. I want to kind of move us towards thinking a little bit about where things are going in the U.S. And, you know, it does feel like you know, we are in this kind of moment of democratic crisis in which you know democrats broadly view our electoral institutions and their tilt towards republicans and what republicans are doing at the state level is illegitimate and republicans broadly think that democrats stole the 2020 election and uh, Democrats are trying to, to cheat and to marginalize Republicans. So uh, how do we how do we get past this? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of solutions. Uh, you know, one is the, that we have national democracy legislation like H.R. 1, which just kind of uh, standardizes voting rules across the, the, the 50 states. 
But there's a lot of uh, folks on the other side who say, well, you know, as kind of James was alluding to, that you know maybe we're putting too much into international elections, and there's a a school of uh, argument that says actually, you know, more federalism, you know, leaving more to the states and letting the states have more power, you know, would actually lower the temperature and make these national elections uh, a little less contested. Uh, I mean, I, I'm certainly extremely supportive of HR1 and, and very uh, skeptical of the idea that more federalism will solve these problems. But, you know, I'm curious what you think based on, on your research, and I know you've looked a lot at this question of, of federalism, what are possible paths forward and how would you evaluate them? Yeah. Um, and in return, like, you know, in synthesizing James' earlier question with this one too. So the U.S. just has a tremendous number of elections across from local dog catcher up to, you know, due to federalism as local dog catcher all the way up to president. All of that is administered by the states um, constitutionally. But you're right. There's that so many elections within so many offices within federalism. This is one of the key challenges of federalism in when you when it collides, federal institutions collide with nationally coordinated parties now, you don't get much electoral accountability because there is sort of policy responsibility that bleeds across all sorts of levels. And you can, you know, any politician like during COVID, Andrew Cuomo, who was doing a poor job in the beginning, he can just get on TV and talk trash on Donald Trump. And then people buy pillows of, you know, Andrew Cuomo is bay and stuff. And it's, totally ridiculous. And this is a an outcome from federal institutions in the current technological and uh, party networks moment we're in. Um, so uh, that's, I think, one of the key problems. But you bring up this argument that goes back really to Madison, but then was uh, expanded upon by, you know, Jonathan Rauch and Yuval Levin and David Brooks and so many others, which is that uh, national conflict would decrease if we devolved more authority to states and localities. But again, that's just very glosses over the racial history of the U.S. where state and local governments uh, had to be uh, face national enforcements of civil rights standards throughout American history, as well as all these other mechanisms that institutional decentralization actually empowers uh, wealthier, more concentrated interests at the expense of ordinary people. And you can see a microcosm of this in terms of housing policy, where local meetings are dominated by older whiter, wealthier homeowners rather than uh, sort of a representative sample of, uh, of localities. Um, so ironically, as bad as, you know, the 2016, 2020 elections were in so many ways, like people know more about the presidential candidates. And if you ask a random person uh, who's a Democrat, they will know the difference between Bernie Sanders and like, you know, Tulsi Gabbard and Kamala Harris. They will understand that to some extent, what they stand for. They will not know their state legislative primary candidates or anything else of the like. Um, so I think it's important now that the parties are so coordinated and we can't get that genie back in the bottle. It's important to think about nationalizing American politics and shout out to Charlotte Hill and Lee Drutman's uh, National uh, Ele Federal Elections Agency proposal that I think is a really good one for federal enforcement of election and districting standards and for uh, HR1 in general. But overall, yeah, I think it's really crucial to understand some sense of accountability uh, to uh, have people be able to point to a party that's in power and controls the levers of power and kick them out if they do poorly and 
you know, empower them if they do well. And that's just within federalism, that's borderline impossible at this point. I think my question picks up um, a bit on the federalism point and also on some stuff James was saying earlier about different ways we think about democracy. So this is kind of my, my part two on nationalized politics and party politics. And one thing that, that did jump out at me from your working paper is that you identify 2010 as a really important moment. Um, a really important shift because this is when Republicans win state legislatures. And I, I live in Wisconsin and I lived in Wisconsin then, and I remember this really vividly. And it's not surprising to me that that like changing racial demographics wasn't really part of that story because it, it doesn't seem like the right causal story here. The actual reality of race and the sort of story of race seem really disconnected to me in a lot of places, but maybe particularly um, particularly in places like Wisconsin that have very stark rural-urban divides. But what does strike me as having happened then that contributed to this this temporality is this sort of reviving of a norm that made it okay to start moving backwards on different types of policies. And in the early part of this wave, it was a lot about about breaking unions, and then it's sort of moved into these other voting rights type bills. And I wonder, part of me, all of me wonders that, wonders how much the Obama presidency was related to that, that temporal story. But I also wonder about kind of norm diffusion across states and this sort of general shift in which it was okay to pursue those types of policies. But I also wonder, and I came up with this kind of spontaneously in the middle of a panel a couple days ago. Um, so when you have a random thought, why not say it on the internet? Which is that there, deep in the history of the Republican Party is this notion of, of the party as the one that's sort of more hesitant about mass democracy, right? In like 19th century um, conceptions of, of the Republican Party. And you see this, you see this throughout the 19th century, you see it in the early 20th and the kind of pushback against people like Theodore Roosevelt taking advantage of the new presidential party system. And I wonder like how much that was also lurking there and contributed to the potential for this, for this norm diffusion to happen over the last decade or so. So I guess this, this all comes down to kind of pieces of the Republican party project and also why, why this, this temporal story. So good. Um, I think, yeah, a, a ton there. I think one thing uh, you see diffusion of, so a really masterful understanding of policy feedbacks that policy can change politics uh, that's been shown by the Republican Party in the states uh, going back a generation. And Alex Hertel Fernandez's book, State Capture, and some of his work with Theda Scotchville really talks about the entrepreneurial organizations like, you know, more recent years, the American Legislative Exchange Council, but also Americans for Prosperity and others that really understood policy feedbacks um, and coordinated around them in the states to say, if we can uh, really uh, dismantle labor unions, uh, then we will have openings for other policies. And uh, thinking about electoral administration and gerrymandering is another form of that. But I, it's also worth saying that, I mean, just the Democratic Party would, for 140 years was the main force against democracy in the partisan sense in the US and uh, often gerrymandered districts and things, though it is also important to say that modern gerrymandering, the North Carolina post 2010 maps were probably the record most gerrymandered districts in American history. But with all of that, I think, uh, yeah, this uh, 
focus on policy feedback. So it's absolutely crucial. And now you see this, uh, it's uh, the Koch brothers again released, uh, Jane Mayer did a great story the other day on the Koch brothers and HR1. But all of this was, uh, this had a huge impact, that sort of conservative push on these, uh, from these major organizations had a huge effect on state politics and helped nationalize it by coordinating Republican governments and sometimes bipartisan governments across states uh, with things like model bills. These were real investments in policymaking to what are typically amateurish and unprofessional state legislatures that don't have much policymaking capacity. So that was hugely consequential since the 70s, but especially since the 90s and 2000s. This was hugely consequential in nationalizing state politics um, and uh, in creating these massive policy feedbacks. Um, and then uh, in terms of uh, thinking about race more broadly, I mean, yeah, it's it's really hard to disentangle any of the. I mean, race is the central mo mass like mobilizing factor in American politics. And I, I want to, you know, the National Review, Review is very illuminating in this way where, um, you know, now we're seeing new pushes. There's a variety of sort of anti-majoritarian takes from sort of pop intellectuals these days, you know, and people point to 2016, you know, uh, you know, the masses, the dumb, dumb masses elected Trump. And uh, they, that sort of argument was also true in opposition to the Voting Rights Act from people like William F. Buckley and very serious conservative intellectuals in the 1950s and 60s was that the masses can't be trusted to govern. There was a racial element of that, but they also were like, you know, poor whites shouldn't vote too. Like it should be based on property ownership and so forth. Um, uh, and that's still true, but it's worth saying that Jim Crow, counter-majoritarian, was not supported by majorities. It disenfranchised uh, large shares of the population. The Trump election uh, in 2016 was the Electoral College. He did not win the popular vote. So uh, there's a real interesting contradiction throughout this, which is that often uh, some of these uh, sort of excesses that seem like too much democracy may in fact be the result of too little democracy. And that's uh, going to be key moving forward uh, when we talk. I, I think we, yeah, it just, it's important that we actually expand majority control in the U.S. I, that's crucial. We actually, uh, uh, that would have actually prevented some of these uh, major problems in recent American history. I think that's a a great observation to kind of assess the importance of federalism and how it relates to both politics and how we participate in politics. And then also our tendency to associate politics and see politics strictly through outcomes, policy outcomes, because in America, no one rules. No one rules America. I've said this time and time again, the majority doesn't rule. The minority doesn't rule. That's not what the framers who didn't get everything right we all know, but they certainly got one thing right, is that they believe that no one should rule. And to borrow a little bit from Hannah Arendt here, there's two reasons why America differs from the French Revolution, the American Revolution. One, setting aside slavery, we didn't have abject suffering on the scale that existed in Europe at the time. We were very bountiful. We had fuller stomachs, you should say. And then number two, we had states. States, even John Marshall acknowledges that states are a thing where people gather and participate in politics. And he says in uh, McCulloch v. Maryland, nobody in their wildest mind would ever 
think about getting rid of them. Now, of course, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. That's a debate. But the point is to recognize the importance of states separate and apart from race and slavery, which is hard for us to do. Because what states do is it allows for Madison and his colleagues, and maybe they didn't fully understand what they're doing at the time, but they certainly knew they were struggling to create a stable and permanent place for politics to in which politics can transpire. Something that Machiavelli tried to do, something that literally everybody since the Greeks had been trying to do, and it never really worked. And the reason why is that the people ultimately, and the demos, would always step into the shoes of the sovereign, and then they would rule. And once you start ruling, you get you fall into that kind of cycle. Derrida helps us to see this distinction, I think, between politics and outcomes, or politics and production, and allows us to see this importance of space, because he talks about this distinction between affirmation and position. Right For him, affirmation is more like a promise and position is you're taking a stance. It implies action. And what that does is that it highlights a place where that action occurs, where people take positions. And in those places, be it Congress, be it a state house, be it a city council meeting, when you take action in the public sphere like that, you invite, you create an opportunity to be held accountable for your actions and in elections, right? And then and on we go. And But if we begin to lose sight of the importance of states, the importance, and this isn't about states' rights, this is about buttressing that space, uh, we then lose the ability to preserve that space. And this ultimately, this is what Madison was doing. This is, it's not to, to turn down the temperature. Madison says in Federalist 10 that fa factions are the problem. So what's the answer? Bring factions in, right? Bring them into the government. Like that's the answer. And the answer is the problem. Basically, there's a grease fire in the kitchen and Madison's like throw in like more, you know, whatever you're not supposed to do with grease fires, throw water on them, I guess. I don't know. But like, that's the answer. Conflict is the answer. Conflict. And so if we don't like what's happening in Georgia, we organize in Georgia. You organize elsewhere. You brought, draw attention to it and then you hold people accountable and then you you do politics. But I think when we begin to, and I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but it seems to me that when we begin to see politics as about progress towards the promised land, and we speak in terms of legitimate and illegitimate, and we all know there are illegitimate and legitimate policies, but we do that as a way to kind of achieve certain outcomes, then I think we begin to slowly lose sight of that space. And then we become more likely, and this is why I differ with uh, Lee and respectfully, to adopt reforms that ultimately nationalize things in a very real institutional sense that makes it harder for us to then maintain that space, which is so vital for politics, where we then take positions and can be held accountable. Yeah, so I, this is great. This is the first time I'm like, no, I actually disagree with all of that. That's great. Um, so uh, I think, maybe call me a sort of more cynical, borderline rational choice type, but I think people have preference, including the founders, they have preferences over outcomes, not institutional rules. Institutional rules are, might sound, you know, principled and lofty, right? You know, but they are preferences over outcomes. And the conflict that generated the U.S. Constitution was around first independence from uh, the British and then conflict over how to structure, you know, the Articles of Confederation and later the Constitution when collective action problems really caused major issues for uh, the colonies under the Articles of Confederation. Um, and there was clear uh, uh, understanding of the implications for various rules in terms of the ability of the national government to ban slavery, of the ability of uh, the masses, the poor young men farmers to uh, redistribute wealth and uh, sort of 
take the property um, of the wealthy. These things were well understood at the time and motivated the development of the constitution and the, uh, the development of institutions that advantage or disadvantage certain actors and make the status quo more or less likely to persist and so forth. These were, uh, this has animated uh, institutional design throughout American history and global history um, so right now we should think about the outcomes with respect to this. And also like we can think about the process that actually currently, again, in the technological and partisan moment we're in, decentralized institutions have terrible processes associated with them. For example, the inability of voters to disentangle who uh, in which level of government is responsible for what. Um, or the ability of well-resourced groups with mobile political resources like money to move across states and send model bills and lobby in various states for different regulations versus social movements and ordinary voters and workers who are uh, much more tied to place and can't move their, their bodies to participate in other jurisdictions and across levels of government the way uh, well-resourced groups can. Um, there's so many implications of institutional design for outcomes um, and that really is crucial. And we can just bring this back to, can the American political system solve fundamental challenges facing the country, uh, challenges of providing a stable standard of living to members of the polity, uh, tackling global challenges like climate change, uh, reducing violence in the society, um, uh, providing uh, freedom from authoritarian state imposition. So many of these outcomes are really incentivized and disincentivized by institutional choice here. Um, so for example, the filibuster, we can talk about like, it is just totally ridiculous to talk about the filibuster as a mechanism of deliberation rather than what it is, which is a, a just, if, you know, senators can abolish the filibuster if they feel like it and pass a policy. So it's equivalent to have a policy blocked by the uh, a threat of a filibuster versus losing under a simple majority system in a, in a legislature. Um, so I think it's just really important that we don't fall into the prey of the civic religion of American uh, institutions that has animated sort of uh, mass understanding and uh, a lot of jurisprudence and things like that. But And that's, and I'm just to be clear, I'm 100% not suggesting that. I'm saying that Madison certainly had policy outcomes that he wanted to achieve, but he realized that he wanted to create a space where he could go and fight to try to achieve those outcomes. That's the ambition, counteracting ambition. Conflict's not bad, it's good, we need it. And without that space, you're either a ruler or you're ruled. And that's something that they tried to stay away from. I, I'm not suggesting that there was like disinterested, like platonic or, you know, whatever people above the, you know, like Zeus, I guess the Greek gods weren't disinterested in what was happening in Troy. So, but the point is like, I take your point a hundred percent, but I think, but they thought about this space as the place where they would go to win, where they took positions. And we don't see that now. I mean, I think that's the fundamental problem. I just think it's like due to many, many, changes and sort of uh, changes in, you know, norms and values as well as like who really counts and uh, who should be considered a member of the polity plus changes in technology and uh, so many and, you know, the political economy and so many other reasons now, we just have to think those institutions now uh, really disempower, like this is a very, an institutional structure that radically disempowers the demos um, and certainly, yeah, there are checks on majoritarianism and, uh, you know, the tyranny of the majority is real in some senses, but we're clear in an equilibrium right now where 
majorities are really disempowered to major the major detriment of American society. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think there's clearly some points to having a, a separation of powers, uh, federalism, and so forth. Uh, but those, the benefits of those in my book project more broadly, I'll uh, I get forthcoming 2022. Um, I get into this more broadly, but there are just many of the potential benefits of federalism theoretically may never have actually existed in practice and certainly don't exist now. For example, the idea of policy experimentation or people, you know, sorting to go into the policy regime they prefer or the reduction of national polarization or uh, sort of a, a more closeness between constituents and their representatives as opposed to distant fat cats in DC types of, those things are all just don't operate in practice because of a completely nationalized politics, completely nationalized media, political economy, high inequality in all forms in society. All those things really contribute to the dismantling of those hopeful, optimistic, you know, predictions of what federal institutions will do. And it's similar in terms of the Senate, for example, where, uh, you know, the Senate and the Electoral College had some different purposes, you know, had some different effects on outcomes back in the day that were also not good in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the protection of slave states and things like that. But currently the Senate has different effects. Um, they're also counter-majoritarian, but um, also the last thing I'll just say is just the reification of states as units and um, this is one thing I teach, like in intro U.S. politics, I think it's just crucial to say, like, what is the point of, for example, the Senate giving two senators per state? And people will say, like, well, small states need, you know, need to have a voice and a substantial voice in the national legislature. And you just ask why. And there is no argument besides appeals to tradition and authority, which are logical fallacies. There's really no, like, people... Ordinary people currently don't identify with their states. They identify with the country. You know, I love, I'm from San Francisco, California. Like I am the Bay Area hyphy movement warriors fan obsessed with place, but that does not mo motivate people's political lives. And there's just, uh, there's no real argument anymore for states except for path dependence, appeals to tradition and appeals to authority. So I, I want to, Bring us to a close of what's been a, a fascinating conversation here and, and give you the last word, Jake. Just kind of want you to weigh in a little bit uh, on, you know, where we're going. H how much longer can American democracy go on with these two very uh, different political coalitions with very different visions of American democracy and with institutions that that are are really struggling. I mean, is is this going to be a permanent period of, of democratic decline? Is this just a temporary? Where, where, where do you see the potential uh, for the next decade or so? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm usually pretty pessimistic, but I'll go with some cautious optimism here. So I think one, the silver lining of the past maybe five years or so has been People taking, especially sort of, I'd say like mainstream liberal elites, like from the center right to the center left, mainstream elites, never Trump conservatives, members, you know, elites affiliated with the Democratic Party, intellectuals and media, really uh, getting a shakeup. Like, the, you know, those Hans Knowles coalition merchants, I, I buy that, like these individuals do affect 
politics. And these individuals are now more critical of institutions. They are less buying into a civic religion that uh, these institutions are, uh, you know, inherently normatively good and things like that. I think that's crucial. So that's a moment for optimism, despite no real policy movement yet. And then I think that's true also of what, for lack of a better word, uh, the sort of neoliberal consensus in some ways has broken down. Um, and I think this is an opening to, again, connect ordinary individuals to their uh, to the political economy and their political lives. And that is a form of democracy that I think has been lost where, you know, for again, the labor movement, like it does some things that political elites and, you know, their allies in the Democratic Party don't always like. And organizations that have mass memberships can go off the rails in these ways and they're, you know, messy and things. But losing that sort of mass organization really opens up the potential for an extremely dark politics. Um, that's based in not policy of any form with no policy content, but rather it's based entirely in sociocultural resentments about, you know, who is gonna win the, the Oscar and, you know, Beyonce at the Country Music Awards, like generates resent, like this animates our modern politics. It's, I don't wanna be a, I'm not trying to insult people. They're like, these people are not stupid. People motivated by that sort of symbolic politics are not stupid, they see, changes in socioculture, um, changes in technology, changes in the, they're trying to make sense of their place in the world. But uh, to get a healthier politics, we need to reinvigorate mass organization. I think the fact that you hear even conservative Democrats supporting labor relations reform in the PRO Act, I think is very hopeful. Um, even Joe Manchin and even the governor of New Jersey, places that you know you would not quite expect you know, Virginia and the professional middle class sort of new democratic college educated white constituencies in the suburbs that don't really have an economic incentive to support labor unions, they support it. Uh, um, it's, uh, we've seen, you know, renewed interest in organizing ordinary people in society. And that's, I think, a hopeful sign for the future. Um, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. We can experience some serious backsliding, but I have some cautious optimism um, that out of the past five years of fire, I don't know this metaphor here, but out of the past five years of uh, some disruption has emerged a new, the potential for for uh, new directions. Well, I, I hope that, that will be a, a new, exciting flavor of democracy burrito. So thank you, Jake. This has really been a wonderful conversation and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. If you're interested in the topics we talk about here on Politics in Question, you'll like the Democracy Paradox podcast. On this show, host Jostin Kemp discusses social and political ideas with scholars from political science, sociology, economics, and many other disciplines. You'll hear from guests like Erica Chinoweth, Jacob Hacker, Paul Pearson, 
Amy Erica Smith, and our very own Lee Druppen. And you'll listen to conversations covering everything about democracy, like the challenges facing American federalism or social media's influence on politics in Africa. The aim is not to debate policy or politics, but to introduce new concepts to listeners so they can understand politics and society better. These conversations will test your assumptions about democratic governance. They will also give you reason to hope for the success of a government based on democratic ideals. You can find the Democracy Paradox podcast at democracyparadox.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are found.